The letters at the end of the Bible are real letters, and I find that very exciting. Uh, it's rather nice reading other people's letters, I think, and sometimes when you go to a historic place, uh, such as one of the sites of incidents in the Second World War, uh, one of the things that you can do is to read some of the letters that people wrote, that soldiers wrote home, or that parents or wives or husbands wrote to their sons or husbands. Uh, and uh, they are so moving to read other people's letters, really gives you an insight into what they're thinking. So I particularly appreciate the letters at the back of the Bible. And the, another interesting thing about them is that they are the, the section of the Bible which is closest in time written to the death, the life of Jesus. So that Paul, who wrote this letter, his lifetime actually overlapped the lifetime of Jesus. It took me a while before that dawned on me that this was sort of contemporary literature, if you like. Uh, the, the Gospels are written a little later, but in the letters we have really up-to-date things that Christians in that first era of Christianity were thinking and writing. So I think that makes them very special. Romans is an unusual letter for Paul because it, mostly he was writing to people he'd already met. He was writing back and referring to things that had happened when he was there. But Paul had not been to Rome when he wrote this letter. It was towards the end of his ministry and he had, so Bible scholars say, distilled his thoughts more in an organized way uh, more systematically than in some of the letters, uh, which are a little bit more personal because he's referring to people he knows and writing to them. So it's a uni unique letter in that respect. He's writing, hoping to go to Rome. Uh, he didn't get to Rome until he was arrested. When he ended up in Rome, he ended up there in chains. But this is written before that when he was hoping that he might be able to go and start a Christian group there. The origins of the church in Rome are not really known, although some people do have a theory about it. Um, certainly there was a church in Rome before, during Paul's lifetime. So having said all that, there are three themes from that passage that Alan read that I want to just pick out. The first theme is in verses 26 to 28. And the question arises from these verses, I feel, how do we pray when words fail us? How do we pray when words fail us? How do we pray when we hear of tragedies, like massive earthquakes, floods, all sorts of disasters, and more personal events that might come upon us or on those we love, out of the blue? Paul's writing here about the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in the heart of all who've accepted Christ. So if we have taken that step, if we have accepted Christ, then it is a gift that we have. We can be assured on the basis of God's promise, it is a guarantee. And the Holy Spirit is there within us to help us to live as God wants us to live. But it's up to us, we're given the choice, to decide how much influence we give to that inner voice, or how far we call on that power to help us. So back to the question, how do we pray 
when words fail us. Paul writes, the spirit himself pleads for us in groans that words cannot express. Now it may be that Paul is referring here to the gift of tongues, which is a special gift of a prayer language given to some Christians who pray in languages which they themselves don't understand. That gift is not for everyone. It's not for all Christians. But there is another meaning that is for all of us. We don't need words to pray. We don't need words to pray. Methodism is a wordy denomination. I'm not speaking of the URC. <laughs> Methodism is a wordy denomination. We love our words. We love our, the, hymns, the, the words of our hymns. We love the word, and there's nothing wrong with that. But prayer can also be wordless. It can be wordless tears offered to Christ. It can be the mere connection of our minds to someone or some issue, bringing that in our minds to God. We don't tell him what to do. We bring that to him. It could be the intentional lighting of a candle. We have a candle at the front of our church that is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. When I visit big churches and cathedrals and see all these rows of candles that are there for people to light, I have to light one. And there's usually someone that I can attach to the prayer that goes with that candle. Prayer actually can be offered the offering of a task to God. Years ago, Brian and I were cycling on our tandem in Ireland, and uh, we had ascended an enormous hill, a very sloping road. We were about to cycle through the Gap of Dunlow, if anybody knows it. It was terrifying. But we got to this cafe, lovely big cafe, just before we were going to go onto the Gap of Dunlow. And so, of course, we went in for refreshment. It was a very big room, and we went right to the far end because it had a fantastic view. And apart from us, the cafe was empty. And the waitress came toiling down the room <laughs> to take our order. And we said, oh, it's terribly sorry. We'd come and sat here and brought you all this way to take our order. She said, sure, I'll offer it to the God in my prayers. Now, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Because she had to do this extra thing. She'd offer it to God in her prayers. And I think that's a lovely thing to do. If you've got something to do that you really don't fancy much, but you know it's something you really should do, offer it to God in your prayers. Most, most of us pray a lot more than we think we do. Now, if we move to verse 28, we come across one of the most misquoted and misunderstood words in the Bible. Because often people say, well-meaning people say, all things work together for good. As though that was a general principle and it applies to everybody. And two important differences we know when we look at what the Bible says, what St. Paul wrote. First, that principle is applied by Paul only to, quote, those whom God has called according to his purpose. Paul is referring to Christians. And secondly, it's not the all things that work together for good, but God who works for good in all things. And that's really very different. And perhaps that gives us another clue how we can pray about some difficult situations. We can always pray that God will bring some good out of every situation, however tragic. And we often see examples of this when disasters take place and we're watching 
terrible things on television and people come and are interviewed and they tell you about some good thing that has come from it. I've got to know the neighbours so much better. You know, the kind of thing. Uh, so there is some good to be found in all things if we are trusting in Jesus. So moving on to verse 29 to 30, and it says something about people being chosen by God to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is this a reference, as some types of Christians have thought, to predestination? In the history of the Christian church, it's an issue that caused much upset, and it's still maintained by certain groups. I believe Jehovah's Witnesses have that belief that if you're not one of the elect, there's nothing you can do about it. And a section of the Christian church back in 16th century uh, believed that. The question was a big issue during the Reformation, after Luther's famous challenge to the Roman Catholic Church based on his study of the scriptures. And Luther realized that the basic truth of the New Testament, that we are saved by faith in Christ, had been overlaid and complicated by church tradition. It had become too complicated. And that realization and what sprang from it led to the huge changes in the church throughout Europe and the establishment of all the Protestant denominations. It's, of course, what we call the Reformation, including the Methodist Church arose as a result of the Reformation and, of course, the URC. And also, I hasten to point out, to the Reformation of the Roman Catholic Church, it too was reformed. So as Methodists, Methodists embrace the three alls of John Wesley. All can be saved, all can know that they're saved, and all can be saved to the uttermost. So if we believe that all can be saved, we can share the gospel, confident that the offer is there for everyone and anyone. Whosoever will may come, as the old hymn puts it. So how does that fit with verses 29 and 30? John Calvin, profound and influential Swedish Bible scholar, scholar of the 16th century, believed that salvation is the whole work of God. No belief in human free will to choose salvation. And John Wesley put a different emphasis on our need to choose to follow Christ. And there are Bible verses to support both those opposing viewpoints. So what do we do? Somebody very helpfully said to me, it's like a two-sided coin. On one side, the one you see first, are written the words, whosoever will may come. But on the other side, when you've made the choice, you read the words, you were chosen from the beginning of the world. Now, how many times have we received a letter that tells us we've been chosen? You know the ones, don't you? You've been chosen for a special thing, a special prize draw, and we know everybody got one. I think it's a bit like that. Last theme that I want to pick out, victory is ours. Victory is ours. Paul writes of his own experiences of hardships suffered for the gospel and gives his own testimony that in spite of trouble, hardship, persecution, hunger, poverty and danger of death, complete victory has been given to him. Paul writes to encourage other suffering Christians through the ages and his words have been found true. 
Archbishop Desmond Tutu took the words, victory is ours. And John Bell of the Iona community set those words to music when Desmond Tutu visited Iona. And that was the first time that the victory is ours, goodness is stronger than evil, was ever sung. And we'll be singing it in a few minutes. And in our own lifetime, we've seen the collapse of persistent evil, in the collapse of the Burning Wall, in the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland. Whoever thought that would happen? They'd gone on for centuries. And to the extent, you remember Ian Paisley and Michael, uh, Martin McGuinness, totally opposed to each other. And I remember seeing Ian Paisley on television saying, never, 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 with great passion. And after the Good Friday Agreement, those two became known as the Chuckle Brothers because they got on so well with each other. It was a miracle. <laughs> if you need cheering up, I recommend Desmond Tutu's little book called God Has a Dream. And in that he writes, this is a moral universe, which means that despite the evidence which seems to the contrary, there is no way that oppression and lies can have the last word. And here's another example of God working for good through evil situations. Tutu referring to, Des uh, to Nelson Mandela writes, this man who languished in jail for 27 years, vilified as a terrorist, eventually became one of the strongest moral leaders of the world. Goodness is stronger than evil.